This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Scott. And I'm Paul. Hi, I'm Luke. And we're going to talk about The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. A, yes. An 1897-ish novel um, that I had never read before. I'm impressed cool. that I never read it. It was pretty familiar because I've read everything, you know, every adaptation and heard all the audio dramas. <laughs> seen all well not all the movies but a lot of the movies um i really like this book is i can see why it yeah. sort of made a little splash when it landed it, in the late it 19th had century. been um, a long 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 time ago since i've read it's been you know years you know the stuff that i remembered out of it um are you know the alien invasion part really is what stuck with me mm-hmm. but what sticks with me this time is everything that happened after um, not, you know, the alien invasion was cool, but, uh, after, you know, you just see shades of so many things, you know, like, uh, you know, just society completely falling apart and, um, one and wondering, wandering around, wondering what in the heck is going to happen now, um, while under the danger of the aliens, um, it was great. Loved it. It was I... like a uh, walking dead, right? <laughs> Pretty yeah. much. It's a disaster book. Sure. It, yeah. it, 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 it is a post-apocalypse books book. Um, it's also in the tradition of those late nineteenth-century novels where England isn't quite sure whether they're going to invasion novel. You mean? Yeah, the invasion novel. I mean, uh, like uh, like the Battle of Dorking, I believe is the mm-hmm. name of it, mm-hmm. and 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 a whole other like what's going to happen to England sort of fin de sickle novels that were in vogue back then. I thought I had read this book. Mm. I, now that when I listen to it, I'm not entirely sure I actually had. I thought I had way back in high school, but maybe, but maybe it's just the, all the all the other properties and adaptations and and illusions and alliterations from the book have just come so far forward that no, I actually hadn't actually read the original before. Now I know it for certain I have, but. I thought I had. It's like, oh yeah, this this familiar, this familiar, this familiar. But then I started questioning myself. Wait a minute, that am I remembering that or remembering that from the movie? I'm remembering that or remembering that from Orson Welles. I'm remembering that for the TV series, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, thank you for at least for certain getting uh, getting the lacunae out of my uh, reading. If I had remembered read the original, I had not remembered it in full because there are part passages here that like i don't remember that mm-hmm. okay uh oh so the so so our narrator who meets meets the uh the soldier who's going to form the the grand resistance he had saw him before in his garden i don't remember that at all i thought they were strangers so i do think this was in the end brand new to me nice mm-hmm. i uh i'm I rely on ISFDB for a lot of uh, my daily, you know, tracking down of stories and where they were published. And uh, they don't usually do synopses, you know, uh, and they don't, they have ratings and they have voting and also uh, almost nobody uses that aspect of it. 
But of course, this one has a lot of that stuff. And I note that their synopsis is, I think it's a bit off. Uh, let's see what you guys think of it. Um, an English astronomer in the company of an artilleryman, an artilleryman, a country curate, and others struggled to survive the invasion of the Earth by Martians in 1894. So that's the first part of it. Um, well, there's a mistake say, right there. There's a, a mistake all through it, right? It's not yeah. in 1894. It's actually set in the future. It's set somewhere in the early 20th century. Um, and he says something like six years before, near the book, the beginning of the book. Um, and the, I think he's when he says six years before, he's actually recalling the events of of the book. As six years yeah, it's, before. it's a look backwards. Well, but <clears throat> I think that it, the book is set in 1894, at least what he's describing. He may be describing it from a little bit further in the future, but um, no. it's because there was a specific alignment of astrono- astronomical stuff, wasn't there? It was like when Mars was closest to Earth, you know, it was uh, at opposition or whatever. Yeah. Um <laughs> I don't think so. I, I, I okay. I, I know. I mean, there is there is a lineup, absolutely. But I don't think it was 1894. Well, if it is, I don't remember that in the book. Uh, it's inter- It's interesting because I tried. I I tried to uh, get through it a second uh, time, but I didn't quite get through it a second time. Sorry. Hmm. What do you got, Paul? Okay. So I got. So I, so the book is. The book was written in 1898. There is a reference because I just p- pulled it up on Gutenberg. No, it's not 1898. There's... It's 1897 because that's the first serialization, and it was 95 and 96 when it was being written. There, there was a, there was a, there's a mention of a during the opposition of 1894, a great light was seen on the illuminated part of the disc. First at the Lick Observatory, then by Proton and Nice, and then by other observers. Right, but that, but, but I, I want to point out. That is not uh, when the book is. The events are set. I mean, that that that's when that's, that's when they. That's when that's, he's saying. That's when, uh, back yeah, that's then, when things start. That's 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 when things started. Was that opposition is when the the Martians launched themselves. Right. But. And if you listen to the War of the Worlds audio uh, a radio drama, you know the Orson Welles one, um, <laughs> it happens in real time. Right, so they're looking but, at. But, but it doesn't. But it actually, yeah, it happens in real time. But no, okay. I I actually got into an argument on Twitter last October thirty first about this. Okay. And, and we're going to go off set. The War of the Worlds audio drama is not set in real time. Inside of the, inside of the continuity, because if you listen to the very beginning, he talks about the thirty ninth year of the twentieth century. He talks about. The war scare was over. Mm-hmm. Things would pick up. He talks about all the stuff that about the basically future events from the perspective of 1938. And at the end, they talk about 1939 cars. The War of the Worlds audio drama is actually set a year after it was actually broadcast. It wasn't brought, It wasn't set on October 30th. I don't disagree with that. But I'm, what I'm saying is, like while while you're listening to not the not the well, you know, while the you're setup, listening, you think it's. Yeah, well, yes. If if you hadn't listened to the beginning of the setup, then you think it's no. But even so, it even so, even though it is set in the future, it's set in real time. So it starts at the beginning of the broadcast. It says that the setup, right? And then we go to uh, a radio show playing some dance hall music, and then they cut to a radio report, and then they go to a a telescope with an astronomer looking at Mars and saying. Look, there's another one, right? Like these flashes. So it's like 
the transit between Mars and Earth is instantaneous. Yeah, it's it's very very fast in like, in the radio. Uh, it takes less than tw- two or f- fifteen minutes, less than about five minutes, which is pretty <laughs> fast. <laughs> so they get to. Uh, I mean, uh, this is kind of the problem with the uh, 2005 movie adaptation as well, is that for some reason that I cannot fathom, they I, probably because they just wanted to. It'll look cool. They have the spaceships underground, and that, and then they say they were buried there long ago. And then the the lightning stuff that's happening is the the occupants coming into them or something. It's like what? The rest of the movie's good. That part just mm-hmm. makes no sense at all. Yeah, it makes no sense that the ships have been buried for how, untold like generations. The sewer pipes running it through there. You cool. didn't notice this giant spaceship <laughs> under there? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> in the middle of Bayo, New Jersey, one of the most yeah. heavily intellectualized and urbanized places in the in North America. There's yeah, one in, I think there's one in the those. river. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. It, it, and it, I mean, the thing is, is I'm not sure the physics works uh, in the original either. You, there, it's. I don't think it's explicitly stated, but we are led to understand that these are cannon shots. Right, rather than rockets. And uh, who's the Goddard? Right, was inspired to, mm. uh, I guess, fix the, the physics. Starts making rockets um, that would actually do the job, eventually, uh, 70 years later. But mm. the um, the the cannon shots to the Earth is is very old tech. And and how do they land? They land like bullets right they impact on the earth i think that that'd probably kill whatever occupants are inside so other than the the physics problems and the time setting problems um i think this is a pretty damn amazing book and i i i want to point out that there's a really cool section of the book where um uh, by the way he's not an astronomer he's what is he called uh he, he calls himself a philosopher scientist yeah he's like right? a philosophical writer yeah he's, like he's he's writing essays basically mm-hmm. um and he actually tells um i'm gonna read this paragraph he tells you a little joke um in here i'll just read it um it goes like this it is worthy of remark that a certain speculative writer of quasi-scientific repute <laughs> writing, writing long before the Martian invasion, did forecast for man a final structure, not unlike actual Mark, Martian condition. His prophecy, I remember, appeared in November or December 1893 in a long-defunct publication, The Pall Mall Budget. And <laughs> I recall a caricature of it in a pre-Martian periodical called Punch. He pointed out, writing in a foolish, facetious tone, that the perfection of the mechanical appliances must also ultimately supersede limbs, the perfection of the chemical device's digestion, and that such organs as hair, external nose, teeth, ear, and chin were no longer, were no longer essential parts of the human being, and that a tendency of the natural selection would lie in the direction of their steady diminution through the coming ages. The brain alone remained a cardinal necessity. Only one other body part, uh, only one other part of the body had a strong case for survival, and that was the hand, teacher and agent of the brain. While the rest mm. of the body dwindled, the hands would grow larger. And he's got teacher and agent of the brain in quotation marks. So uh, I did my research, and guess what? H.G. Wells's first article was in the Pall Mall Budget, uh, November I think 16th, 
Um, and not, yeah, in the Palmar budget. That's right. I, a lot of people had it as the six. I, it was damn hard to track down. Um, I have almost spent money on an Indian, uh, as an India website uh, that had a copy of it. But I, I've tracked down the original article, and he also mentions the the punch. Um, uh, satire of his his piece called The Man of the Year Million and it was published in 1893 and of course this is a description of what the Martians look like right uh-huh. they're basically giant brains with with hands and squidgy sort of uh, rest of their bodies right they've got eyes drink blood. they have no nose yeah and that's actually how it is in The Man in the Million your million piece is they actually um, they they don't inject themselves with blood, but rather they go for a bath and just soak in the nutrients, right? <laughs> and there's photo uh, not photos illustrations of it that are quite um, uh, sad. And um, one of the things that's funny is that. It's not 100% clear that it is a satire, but I think that that's what he thinks it is. But then Punch went on to satirize it. So if you can satirize a satire um, (laughs) and then go on to write your own novel in which you create such a creature um, as an alien, I think you're doing something pretty amazing. Um, Mm. I I also want to point out that I have the... um, the satire. I won't read the whole article for the uh, for the um, Ape Man Spaceman. Uh, sorry, Ape Man Spaceman is the book that I got it out of. But uh, a thousand, uh, sorry, one million AD is the poem that is a a. Um, how do we put this? Yeah. Okay. Dinner at the Year Million. I've got pictures. I will put up. Uh, the Man of the Year Million. Oh my. Okay. <laughs> So, uh, sorry, I'm, I haven't got this all queued up. Uh, here it is. It's 1 million AD. This is from uh, Punch. Uh, exactly uh, nine days later. Okay. And here's an abridged per- part of um, one, uh, the man of the mil- near million. The descendants of man will nourish themselves by immersion in nutritive fluid. They will have enormous brains, liquid, soulful eyes, and large hands on which they will hop. No craggy nose will they have, no vestigial ears. Their mouths will be small, perfectly round, aperture, unanimal, like the evening star. The whole muscular system. Uh, the whole muscular system will be abbreviated, looks like, to nothing. A dangling pendant to their minds. And that's exactly what they look like. They look like hands and heads. Um, And then here's the poem uh, that's making fun of it. What a million years hence will become of genus humanum is truly a question vexed. At that epoch, however, one prophet has seen us resemble the sketch annexed. For for a man undergoes evolution ruthless. His skull will grow, quote, dome-like, bald, and terret, and his mouth will be a jawless, gumless, toothless. No more will he drink or et. He will soak in a crystalline bath of pers- perspe- pepsine. There we go, pepsine. No Robert will then have survived to wait. 
capital R and Robert. Hmm. And he'll hop on his hands as his food is his food. He steps in a quasi cherubic gate. No longer the land or the sea he'll furrow. The world will be withered, ice cold, dead, as the chilly, as as the chill of eternity grows. He'll burrow far down underground instead. If the Pall Mall Gazette has thus been giving a forecast correct of this change immense, our stars we may thank, then, that we shan't be living a million years from hence. So, uh, not the greatest poem, but I want to point out that, uh, the reason I want to point this out is because I don't normally think of Wells like this, but he's recycling a ton of material in here um, as idea fodder, uh, from the uh, time machine, and yeah, this is late in his career, right? No, no, it's still way early. This is um, this is like when he's just where the world is. Yeah, this is this is his his big piece, right? He's got a couple. He's got a couple. I think um, Invisible Man is next, um, but it's not late in his career. It's fairly early, actually. So yeah, so before this, he wrote uh, the Time Machine, the Wonderful Visit, Island of Doctor Moreau. The Wheels of Chance, The Invisible Man was the year before. Oh, okay. And then The War of the Worlds was next. And then after this, he wrote When the Sleeper Wakes, Love and Mr. Lewisham. And, uh, he wrote a ton, 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 ton. Uh, and by 1933, yeah. was yeah, the, and there was more. the most first man published in the moon. author alive. Yeah. Well, yeah. there is a ton of stuff, you know. Um, if this is the a lot of stuff of I've career. never heard of. Oh, yeah. stuff I never heard of. Oh, man. So the stuff that I've heard of was mostly before this. Yes, that's his big stuff, right? But uh, what's so cool is, to me, when we get to the artillery man who's digging the hole, and he goes into this whole speech about how he's going to do the uh, revolution and how we're going to survive, and this is how it's going to go, and then we get sort of an enthusiasm and then a realization that this man's insane. Um, he's he's actually describing the future of um, the whole. He's sort of re- recapitulating what's going on in the time machine, right? With Weena and um, the Morlocks, the Morlocks, the Eloy, yes. as uh, sort of these stupid, uh, feeble creatures upstairs, right? And then the the machine factory cannibalistic uh, Morlocks under underground and that, how they're going to, you know, they come above ground and sneak around at night. He's mm-hmm. actually, con- he's sort of re jiggering that. It's pretty amazing because it's, it's all about this, you know, how our new evolution is happening. I, I was so surprised by this <clears throat> quite a bit and I know I hadn't read it, but I like you, Paul, it's so obvious, like that we know the, everything that happens, right? We know about the walkers, and we know about the ending, and we know we know everything about it. But I hadn't read it before, and I I was surprised by quite a few things in the details, but not in the, the overall plot at all. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the curate, the the details of artillery the fact that he's digging this tunnel and. Our narrator realizes that the artillery man is incompetent. Like, why would you pick this house? You should pick the other house because that's closer. And I mean, that that creeping realization he had of the artillery man is incompetent and insane, and that's why he has to give away. I mean, that's it's those little details. I I mean, I mean, here's another detail I didn't realize. Our narrator in this 
in, in the original version as opposed to, I think, every other version except maybe the Tom Cruise has a wife. Like, wait, what? Yep. He has a wife and he's looking for her? What? What? And I, and my mind starts scattering, like, you could do a, you could do a version of this where it's basically a romance rescue version of the War of the Worlds. I mean, even more blatant than than the Tom Cruise version. I mean, the, 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 there's all sorts of different it's strands. His ex-wife you can pick. in that one, right? <laughs> yeah, it's his ex-wife in that one. This, but yeah, it sort of really revolves around him trying to find his son. There's so many different strands that you that have been picked out of this, but you could still pick out of this. But how how do you do that without? Yeah, I, I still I can't else? think of a of a faithful adaptation. Um, um you know. Oh, I, I, and, th- and and then you start getting into not only the the adaptations, the derivations, and the inspirations for this. Um, now I'm going into like John Wyndham and the English authors in the 1950s and 60s who were inspired by the War of the Worlds to make their own sort of invasion disaster apocalyptic visions of what the world will be. I mean, this is a novel that has sprouted many, many, many tripods of, Mm. of derivations and adaptations and inspirations. And I didn't quite realize until reading this in full, just all the different strands you can pick out of. I mean, consider how he describes him going through the landscape and just how devastated it is. And just like wandering through this post-apocalyptic wilderness. I mean, where do we see that before in science fiction of wandering through that sort of hellscape? Mm. Say hi, Luke. Skype Skype is the worst thing ever. Hi, I'm Luke. Okay, good. Well, we'll have to do some editing. All right. Oh, sorry about that. (laughs) Okay. So, uh, where were we? Ah, yes. Um, we were talking about something. Paul, you were talking. I I, 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 I was I was talking about um, how the fact that I can't think of an earlier science fiction novel that really has a post-apocalyptic landscape and aesthetic, and that's just one of the strands that are it, that is in War of the Worlds that's been picked up by other people and other writers. It's like this is there's lots there's lots to take out of here and make your own and remix and that's why there's been so many adaptations and derivations and descendants of this one novel i mean i mean wells wrote a lot but aside from the time machine this is his most influential and i think it's probably more influential than the time machine because the time machine maybe is not so well known outside of genre circles but everybody knows about martians coming and attacking mm-hmm. the earth everybody mm-hmm that's just that's just a that's just a. I was surprised universal. how science fictiony it was because I, I I when I read the Invisible Man with Luke, um, eh, not so science fictiony. I mean it it has science in it, um, but it feels more like a, a novel that has science in it, and it's an extraordinary situation, but it's not a quote unquote science fiction novel. This feels like. Uh, science fiction novel that I've read before, you know, like a Larry Niven <laughs> Invasion of the Earth book or. A, you know all the all the technological stuff. It, it felt very very science fictional in the way that I assume that the time machine feels, which I, again in a book I haven't read yet. Um, no, the time machine is just a. They have a time machine and then it plays through kind of the. Um, how to say it? Like the ramifications of having a time machine and mm-hmm. the Invisible Man 
it doesn't really explain it well, but then it plays through the ramifications of having a, an invisible man. And this does the technology and then plays through the ramifications of, you know, Martians invading, but it fills in that technology a whole lot more. You know, it's yes. a lot more about the physiology of it. Uh, it's a bit more like in the, um, uh, what the Jules Verne from the Earth to the Moon. No, what is it? What it was first man on the moon. Which one is the Jules Verne one and which one is the, uh, oh, the, uh, the, the, the men in the moon? Yes. Yeah, first, yeah. But in that one, it's very much sort of like, okay, now this is how they build this thing, and this is how they build that thing, and this, you know, it's much more technical. And I think this fits in both in both sides of that. You know, yes. it is just something that happens in play out ramifications, but it also delves into like the technical aspects of it, of how how the machines work and the joints and the legs and things. Mister Jim Moon wanted me to point out that uh, the crystal egg, which came out, uh, I think, slightly before the serialization of of this novel is kind of set in the same universe. Have you guys read that story? No, no, not it's pretty, I have pretty cool. Little story. Uh, there's, here's the synopsis from, uh, ISFDB. An antique dealer finds out that one of the items he has for sale, the titular critical, a uh, crystal egg allows views of Mars, basically. <laughs> um, and he, ah. when you look into it, it's like basically a Palantir or what's the science fiction equivalent? Um, uh, yeah, it allows you to mirror darkly, right? Scanner darkly. Yeah, um, it's one of those uh, Orson Scott card slash Ursula Le Guin devices. Uh, and but, so, no, and, 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 so, and that, that's not what an Ansible is at all. Though you're thinking of Ansible, and that's not what it, an Ansible is. An Ansible just lets you talk to other people. It doesn't let you see other see okay. the Well, locations. whatever. The important part is it allows you to communicate with people on Mars by looking into this crystal. And so there, there's this guy, and he's looking he's looking into it under a hood, and his wife is like, "Sell it," because somebody wants to buy it. He's looking into it, and uh, the high point comes when something looks back at him. And it is Ooh. a Martian, um, and it's a it's a pretty good is little it? story, but it, it it fits more as a more as a I don't know a teaser for this novel. Mm. I I read that years and years oh. ago, but um, it's and he wrote that. I mean, that's yes, Wells wrote that. Yeah, yeah, it's eighteen ninety seven, and it's uh, just a little bit before. So I'm. It oh, says it oh. was written in the same year that Wells was serializing War of the World. So yeah, mm-hmm. like concurrently. Yeah, May eighteen ninety seven, which is, is interesting. Yeah. It was. I didn't serialized. realize those those were a Wells thing because now that you're describing them, they were in um, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, the graphic novel. Uh, that that's explain uh, makes you know he knows all. Oh, Alan Moore's read everything apparently. Yeah, I thought he invented that. He actually got them from Wells. Cool. Yeah. yeah. So. Well, isn't Hitchell's a character in League of Extraordinary yes. Gentlemen? Indeed, as is the Invisible Man, and <laughs> yeah. he's got b- b- basically everybody in there. Yeah. Um, I uh, I think this is um, what's so cool about this book is that it still feels, even though, and I can see why some adaptations want to do it. It feels like a a still current book, even with the old Victorian technology, and. If it's written in 1897, or it's published in 1897 and set in the early 20th century, one of the things that happens in here is they get uh, flying machines from from the Martians, right? When the Martian machines break down, or, or the occupants running them break down, they're saying, flying machine? Well, there's no such thing. Well, they have them. It's right there. It's flying through the sky, right? It isn't just the uh, fighting machines that are 
in this book. There's lots of other little things mentioned, diggers and 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 when they come to the earth, they they what do they do? They spend most of their time getting their machines built. It's like they came with little kits inside those uh, those uh, artifacts. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Or well, it sounds like they're doing a lot of hammering, right? Yeah. Yeah. It is, they, they got all the bits and pieces and they bring out the construction kit and put it all together and with all the levers here and there. No, I really like I really like that there's a mention of a fly which flies along and rains like the, the black dust or whatever it is. It comes out the back of the flyer and just covers, you know, big, huge swathes of London. But it's only glimpsed in the book. It's only glimpsed it from afar. You know, it's that's that's not one of the machines which is described up close right. like some of the other ones are yeah, later. Yeah, the walkers are... Uh, the, the, the three-legged uh, fighting... Yeah. They're actually fighting suits. That's the other thing that I didn't... Like, I like, holy crap, this is actually Starship Troopers with aliens, right? <laughs> they're, yeah. yeah. They are exosuits. Sure. They're exosuits, and they look like kind of their occupants, right? They're not exactly the same as their occupants, but in the same way that a, uh, an exosuit from Starship Troopers or uh, armor or forever war is a fighting suit yeah he talked a little bit about you know what does uh, a train or something like that look to a lower life form when we get in it right yeah Yeah. but i love the opposite way around i think it's even mentioned in the text of the book i've I've not read this book recently like in the last three years or something but i've read this book many times um and I, i i like it that the 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 aliens are these lumbering things which don't have you know, any grace. And then they get into the machines and then the machines are really graceful. And I think it's like a great inversion of what machines were like. The op- I mean, that's the opposite of what machines were like in the light, in the late 19th century where, you know, humans could be all graceful and then they get into a machine and it's this big lumbering, you know, hulk that goes around and the, and the Martians, it's the other way around. You know, the machines are very graceful, but they themselves aren't. Mm. Notice that the, um, the big segment that I, I, I guess is not in any of the... Maybe it's in some of the... I, I haven't read them all or seen them all. But the brother sequence where he's... he The, the narrator's stuck in a house uh, basically trying not to make any noise, being a mouse. Um, and then he yeah. goes on to tell the story of his brother. This um, brother sequence is not is not in any of the adaptations as far as I can see. But it, it's almost exactly like he's just telling the story of himself, except it's just his brother. <laughs> so yeah. there's almost yeah. no. This, is, actually, this is included in lots of adaptations, is though. It? But it's it's but it's always made to be the same character. You don't just go yes. and switch to a yes, different character. Absolutely. Like in the Jeff Wayne's War of the World album, like even when I that was my first exposure to, or one of my first exposures to War of the Worlds. You know, there's a movie from the 1950s, which like and the black dust and the tripods, and, and I scared scared the bejesus out of me but the uh, the album the concept album there it just tells a story and it just makes those two characters into the same person and even back when i was a kid i was like well how does he get from like this end of london out to the sea back there and then back to london you know like the geography doesn't very, make very much sense you know where he's going but once you actually read the book and you're like oh actually there's two different people there so his brother was over in you know byfleet to wherever it was or no what's it ramsgate and he was over in the you know in the other end of london london in central london it makes a lot more sense once you 
once you understand like who's seeing the story and that the geography is a lot more spread out than one person can do. But in all the adaptations, um, it seems to be that you, you just have one character going around, like the, the Tom Cruise version. Um, there is a moment where uh, you know where there's a where a train goes past, and there is a moment when there's a ferry and a and a machine comes out from underneath it. But it's always the same character right. seeing all of that from his point of view. There's actually it a funny switch line in in the 2005 movie, the Tom Cruise one, that actually sort of yeah. puts a lampshade on that because uh, at the beginning when we're getting the emotional uh, why we should care about these characters. Uh, he's in the backyard yeah. with his son, and he says, "What's the capital of Australia?" And he says, uh, "I know everything." And he says, um, "Between me and my brother, I know everything." <laughs> and, then, and he says, "What's the capital of Australia?" And he says, "That's one my brother knows." <laughs> All right, isn't that ah, cute? I didn't pick up on that. It's very. Yeah, I didn't. I maybe didn't notice that. It's Did very, you actually like that movie? It's a, it, other than the underground spaceships makes no sense i think it's a very good adaptation um i think the addition of the son and the daughter makes it into a movie um yeah because it's very hard to care about some dude running around uh looking for his wife who we never really see right so we they they change it to make it a good movie um or his brother's wife who who we don't really see right he he has a brother but his, yeah. you know, his wife, his new, his ex-wife is pregnant, and it's, it's yeah. not a, um, it's not a faithful adaptation in some senses, but in other senses, it, it, what, what's so good about this and amazing about this book is it feels like you're in a war. It feels exactly like what it's, we imagine, at least I imagine, it's like to have your country invaded by uh, tanks. And, you know, just people can't care about you because they're just getting overwhelmed. It's like being coming a refugee for uh, the the space of the book. And hmm. that movie does a good job of that. And the um, the fact that they didn't screw up the ending, which I think everyone is really, you know, everyone knows the ending. The fact that it's not our military might that defeats them. Yeah. Uh, you know the fact well, that they be could because put a couple of Independence shots Day in them did and, it. Yeah, exactly. Independence Day. Uh, yeah, there you go. Uh, I mean, Independence Day did the whole oh we give it, you know it gets a virus kind of thing. It's playing off the whole alien invasion dying by virus, but they still had to have the triumphant you know That's moment right. where. Uh, they're brought low and then humans can defeat them. Whereas War of the Worlds, there isn't a moment when they're brought low that then, and then humans defeat them. Which I, actually, I think there is a bit in the end of that Tom Cruise movie where there is a there is a moment where yeah. they, I think there's already, you know, like right at the very end, some soldiers turn up and shoot one down and they're like, yeah. oh yeah, but it was already mostly dying. It's kind of a bit, it's almost, an, it's like an anti-climax climax to realize yeah. that they didn't, they didn't actually do it. But I like I like that about the movie. I yeah. think the thing about that movie that I like most was that it definitely takes the first person point of view really strongly, yes, like in the does. book. Like I do this. And if and if the if Tom Cruise doesn't see it, if he's not in a place to see it, you don't see it. If, in at one point there's this whole battle goes on just over the edge of the hill, and you just see like the top part of the battle with some smoke coming up, and you never actually see it. And when the train goes past and an attack, you don't see it, you just see the aftermath. You see lots of refugees, you see, you know. I don't know, lots of stuff that's broken down and aftermath stuff, but not always the battle itself, which, uh, mm. yeah, it brings that 
like aftermath of war feeling into the movie, which is a lot more so than most movies, I think. So one of the things that you missed, uh, Luke, when we started was I, I was mentioning this this article that H.G. Wells' first ever published article uh, was for the Paul Mall budget, and in it he he imagines humanity's evolution in, into the year one million, and right. he has them basically as as the Martians are in in this novel. And what's interesting is that if you look at the illustrations in the the Pearson's uh, publication, which is where it was first serialized, um, this is with obviously you know he's seeing them as they're coming out. Um, I'm sure he could have said uh, you know no this is not my vision because it was a big deal. Um, they look like kind of like squids or like uh, octop- octopi, and really that's kind of what. They're described as being, um, but that's only part of the picture. The other part of the picture about this book that's so cool is that we know a lot about this book because he was writing about it, about writing it to his friends who were the people in the book. So the main character uh, yeah. is H.G. Wells in everything except name. His brother is actually H.G. Wells' brother who lived in the same neighborhood as he did. And in the novel here, we've got H.G. Wells' avatar saying, I'm, I was learning to ride bikes and drive around Horsley Common, or I think that was called, what's called, and Woking, right? He actually lived in Woking, and when yeah. he was riding his bike around the neighborhood, he was seeing people and, imagine, and seeing their, their cottages and imagining what these giant heat beams would do to them. And then he puts characters from his own life experience into the novel with either a changed name or not. So the curate, right, that is the most savage, brutal attack on organized religion I've ever seen in a novel. That is brutal because he's he's saying, you know, not that God and belief in God is bad, but... This guy whose job it is to be moral and upstanding and care about the neighbor, the neighborhood and the the people in the in the community, is is not just you know piggish and such, but also dangerous. Mm. Did you yeah. guys were you not struck by the 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 curate story because the artilleryman well, you know <clears throat> I think he's not completely insane. But the curate is, it's like, he's, he's, I don't know. He's well, I mean, the curate, the, curate is, the curate is coming apart, right? And, yes. um, yeah. and he basically says, um, the narrator, you know, after he's, he's done listening to him, he says, you know, hey, just snap out of it, man. And then he, he says, I mean, the, the narrator tells him, hey, God is not an insurance agent. Right. You know, which is which is fantastic. You know, it's a really great statement. You know, he's saying, you know, think of what earthquakes, floods, wars and volcanoes and all that stuff have done to people. Um, You know, God is clearly if he exists, you know, he's clearly not belief in God does not exempt you from uh, things happening. There's a there's a um, interview with I think it's three of the Monty Python guys and uh, one of those. (laughs) Uh, Anglican ministers, you know, who yeah. debate him on TV, and it felt like that. It's like this guy, you know, with his his beads and his his necklace. Um, 
he's he's looking at it from a certain position and when he falls from that position um you know when he's the argument's not going in his favor he just like he, he results in sort of a an insanity um yeah what's so striking well, is that the narrator calls on god all the time throughout the novel um he thanks god he's if he's doing it in a non-religious way he's doing it in a non-religious way a hell of a lot so it, it seems to be like a almost a science versus a formalized religion book to me yeah well i think one of the things that he's talking about in this book i mean uh you know if you tie it in with the artillery man stuff as well is you know he's talking a lot about the things that we do in decadence the the places that we're allowed to go yes. and think about and you know i think that that's all part of it it's it's like you know the how we think right now you know in today's society in 2018 is a lot different than we thought you know in 2000 bc when we were worried about where food's going to come from and things like that you know um in a way it's it's the same point that hg wells is making you know it's like it's one of the appeals of uh, the post-apocalyptic novel is to strip away all this stuff and then what is what is really important what is genuinely important and what is genuinely you know true you know you're going to build the back up hopefully with those things in mind and you get a chance to do that build the world better it's a very interesting thought experiment yeah yep and that yeah, that, uh, that that comes up right at the end too and i i think it's it's a terrific i mean we can see the end sort of coming but it's a terrific ending and there's you guys all got a chance to look at the illustrations right um, from the 1897, the first publication, because this this book made such a huge impact at the time. Um, it, it's never been out of print, which is uh, pretty amazing. I mean, there's a lot of H.G. Wells stuff that is out of print. You know, not the Invisible Man, not this, not the Time Machine. But uh, these illustrations were what, I mean, it's almost like what the movie does, right? It is it it concretizes a certain things because. When we're when I'm reading it, I'm imagining what's going on, but th they're kind of distancing. And I, I yesterday I tweeted out a couple of pictures of um, an uh, a Belgian uh, edition by an artist from South America named Henrique Alvim Claria. Did you guys see these ones? Yeah. They're, the ones that you tweeted, yeah. Yeah, there's a there's a couple like one like just seeing what the heat beam does. We we know it, right? Well, one of the things I didn't like about the 2005, I guess that was a Spielberg movie, right? Yeah. Um, was that the heat beams just turn everybody into I don't know powder suddenly, and then we get the sort of very movie version of the horror is the the clothes falling down from the sky right the ripped pieces of garment that is yeah. left when the heat beam hits them um that is kind of the opposite of what the original illustrations and the 1906 illustrations they are it's like imagine tintin as a horror show uh yeah like mm. you literally see somebody's skeleton crisping right and it's like that is horrifying and seeing the <laughs> arm reaching into the house and sort of flopping around looking for the guy you know the this is the uh, curate 
um, when he's making noise, and it comes in and it, it touches his his foot, right? Yeah. That's actually all in the movie is the 2005 adaptation. One of the things, yeah. the other another little nod to that 1953 version is that the shape of the the probe there looks like the head of the the 1953. Um, yeah. In, in, so that's a little like nod to the nod to the past, but th- that yeah. that scene in the dark where he's hiding like a mouse, literally like he's a mouse, and then. Uh, the later on the artillery man says we will become rats, right? Hmm. Uh, it's just to go back to the art though. That yes, just before that, onto uh, other other stuff, the art I think is interesting because like every single like next generation or new adaptation. The good thing about this book is that it, it, it allows so much it like allows so much interpretation, you know, like what mm-hmm. do the aliens or what are you going to say the aliens look like? You know, uh, the size of a bear or are they more octopus like or are they more upright or what are they going to be? And what do them what do the walking machines look like and the digging machines and the war machines and the flying machines? There's so much there's so much in this book, which is described in a way sort of like by analogy to the technology of the time. Um, in the book so every time that it wants to be updated it's it's kind of interesting that to see the updating the updatedness being like always a reflection of like the state of technology of Mm -hmm. the time Mm -hmm. and i don't think there's that many science fiction things which you know keep working in that way of course like there's a time machine it can be like a like a steampunky kind of thing or it can be a delorean or i mean there's lots of other things it could be but i i think that the war of the worlds is is one of those things that like it's much more reflective of like you know what's what's material design like now what are what do weapons look like now and you know make that kind of martian like or alien like and and there's that's why there's so much interpretation like every every few decades there'll be another way of imagining the tripods or another way of imagining the you know the war machines or the martians themselves which like comes through I, I, uh, when i when i was poking around on this i found out that the bbc is going to make uh uh, TV adaptation. I guess they're filming it now. Mm. Really? Um, and oh, it's okay. going to be Victorian era. So oh, they're okay. so going to be three, three we'll one-hour episode miniseries on BBC. Hmm. Yeah. But well, that'd be interesting. Because I, I want, I want to see that in first version. I like. I say I want to see a period piece as it says. Yeah. Anyway, so carry on. Yeah, but I could totally see if you did the War of the Worlds now. Set now, the the Martians would probably have more advanced versions of drones and other height high-tech cruise missiles and all the high technology that we have now, except just more alien and more futuristic versions. You're absolutely right, Luke. I mean, The War of the Worlds is a novel that somehow can be reinterpreted and reimagined in all sorts of eras going forward and and backward. I mean, think about this. You could set... I mean, since, since the aliens die because of disease, you can set The War of the Worlds in any period in human history you want because the aliens yeah. are going to die at the end. You could have you could have them versus medieval knights. You could have them against Roman legions. Oh, there's a there's a novel idea. <laughs> uh, against any time in any place you want and to and, and be able to show off uh show, show off humanity futilely trying to faint against aliens and its bacteria that saves us in the end. You can make this yeah. a historical piece of any time and place. That's I want to point out why, why why what you just said is really cool, Paul. Um, notice you went uh, to the Roman legions, right? Notice they're not attacking some uh, 
state we don't know about in the middle of Asia in in the Middle Ages, right? And right. the reason is it's about empire, right? Mm -hmm. That's why when they ad adapt it in the in the 20th century and the 21st century, it's yeah, it has not to be New set York. in England yeah. anymore. Yeah, it's set in the real leading empire now, which is the states. So instead of being just outside of uh, Washington uh, or London, it's outside of Washington, right? Or outside of New York or uh, mm. in Los Angeles, right? Outside of Los Angeles in the 1953 version. Because the empire, the, the criticism of empire and the – we think we are all that, right? We know we're number one right now is, yeah. is, is being brought low. And so you can't have it just, you know, <laughs> these these giant walking machines against, you know, bows and arrows, although that's actually straight out of the book. He says it's like bows and arrows. Well, that's what yeah. we've got. Bows and arrows against the storm, yeah. That's right. Yeah, I, I, when I talk to people about this book, oh, sorry, Karen. No, I'm, I'm sorry. I was just going to mention it reminds me of, uh, you guys made me think of Return of the Jedi and Ewoks versus yep. not <laughs> Ewoks, Walkers, the, the two-legged yeah. ones. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was just going to say, when I talked to people about this book, and I was like, oh, no, it's only London that's invading. They're like, no, no, it's a worldwide invent in, in, invasion. I'm like, nah, pretty sure, pretty sure it's just London. You know, they're, they're striking at the head of the greatest empire yeah. of the time. You know, yeah. take up, take over that, you know, stop that kind of thing, you know, and uh, this tiny little, this tiny little beachhead, you know, that, that's why... Great Britain was the it could survive. You know, it's a, a def, an island is defensible, and yeah. also it's a great beachhead for then invading Europe and things. And exactly what happened in the Second World War is kind of being seen. Well, not in advance, but like the same kind of thing is is being reflected on here in this book that uh, the British Isles are an isolated place, but so powerful with connections to the to the, to the rest of the world. And that's why when people try and get away, it's with railways and you know, and then the the whole Thunderchild with the with the um, uh, you know the military uh, naval might of Britain is also brought low, and it's very important that the navy is also decimated. Not just the artillery, not just the you know infantry and all that kind of stuff. That the navy was such a huge part of the the British Empire that that also had to be defeated by the to show, shown to be um, uh, nothing by the by the Martians as they invaded. I noticed that, that that that's not in the adaptations. They always make it a worldwide phenomenon. I think yeah, one exactly. Of, one of the reasons that they especially emphasize it in the 2005 is is by by 2005 the Chinese market, you know, the the world market for films is much bigger. So yeah. you can actually, you know, you say, "Hey, uh, Osaka took out one of these. If they can do it, we can do it," right? Yeah. Um, that kind of um, it actually Osaka's undermines Japan, the whole satire that is seemingly, I think, ignored by the filmmakers for the purposes of we're making a movie here, guys. We're not trying to, yeah. you know, uh, mock our society or not mock, I guess, um, yeah. poke holes in, in our our issues. Yeah, that's because, totally different from Independence Day, which is like it's exactly. American, but literally the message is like it, Independence just used to be for Americans, but now the whole world will say, you know, the Fourth of July is going to be Independence Day, and you have all these scenes of everybody <laughs> around the world cheering, and the right. and the same scene is there with the British sort of like, oh, they've they've worked out how to take it out. Well, let's get our planes up there, chaps, and take you know, let's that's right, you know, again, if the Americans can do it, so can we, and this you know, 
British military base in the middle of some desert somewhere. I didn't uh, see the yeah. the, re- the sequel. I hope oh. uh, somebody has seen it and can tell me. I don't ever need to see it. It looked terrible. I have I, not seen it because it looked terrible. Okay. I have only heard it looks terrible reviews. I mean, reviews which say it looks terrible. T- talking about when you say these these um these stories could be set at any time to make to make in independence day they had to make that that was force fields and weird energy weapons which outside of our you know understanding just to make it like not likely that our modern technology could just knock them out you know because they were just mm-hmm. flying around in airplanes and as soon as the shields were gone they're like oh we can knock these guys out quite quickly um so yeah it's there is a if it's set in the modern day, the aliens have to be so advanced that, uh, to knock out all the human weaponry because I don't know it just seems more well, like modern modern day weapons seem more science fictional than science fiction weapons. That's in many a, that's a cool thing. There's almost you know like when he goes into the super science uh, and that's literally a term used in the 1953 version where they start with a uh, you know a whole sequence of basically briefing you on what the planets are like and what current level our technology is um in in the original they don't have shields the, their technology is mysterious like they've got these green gases coming out of the joints okay we don't know mm. what that is they've got some new element that combines with argon to create the uh the black gas or something um well that's something um but it's all science-based right so what's what's cool is they come we don't know what they're doing at first. We found we find out. Oh, they're building equipment, and then they've got the heat beams that can kick the asses of anything there, the, including the artillery. Although the artillery gets a couple hits in and knocks one down, right? Mm. There's there they do have vulnerability. It's just that it's a first strike mentality where they've got they've got the right equipment and all that. And what's subtly mentioned in the book, but actually mentioned is that, oh, they're going for another target, which is Venus. Yes. Yeah, yeah that's not seen in any of the adaptations I can I can no. think of, that, that Venus is their next target, yeah. There are so many subtleties in this book that if you read it closely, you're like, oh, there's actually some, like, what do they eat on the way? Because they eat humans when they get here. And it, there's this little scene where they mention, oh, yeah, and we found oh. these desiccated bodies of these, you know, when because all the blood's been sucked out of them. But they were, like, bipedal, like us on Mars. They're like us. And you're like, oh, shit, there's, like, a another whole other race which I has been subjugated. I think that's actually mentioned in the Crystal Egg as well, the, the bipedal ah, okay. ones. Yeah. Yeah. And and the the main character thinks that they're just they're the the people of Mars and turns out no, they're not. Right? They're the food. Uh, Yeah, the food of the people. Yeah. But you you kind of think, oh, and what's on Venus? Is there some bipedal things there that they want to, you know, want to eat as well? The, the actually this one the what you're saying before, uh, was it Paul, I can't remember, um saying about that uh like when it it could be set at any time. The, the one of the fun things in the um Harry Turtledove World War series in yes. the first one is that they go oh we sent our probes here and they sent back pictures and there's like a knight with a you know with a sword and on a horse and they're like oh right these guys are going to be easy and by the time they get here like it's during the massive uh, rapid technological advancement of the Second World War, and they arrive and they're like, "Oh shit!" They're like working on nuclear weapons, and they've got planes and stuff. <laughs> we weren't expecting that, and uh, that's one of those little nostalgia things throughout the books. That one of the uh, one of the lizards brings up the picture of the the knight with his shield on a horse, and they're like, "Ah, oh, if only, <laughs> if only." <laughs> we could have taken these guys. 
Yeah, we could have no, yeah, taken these guys out. No problem. Yeah, they say that exactly. It's like if they, yeah. these superhumans then just evolved in a normal technological pattern, we wouldn't have these problems because, because of course, once we see once the humans see the the races tanks and stuff, they start upgrading their own vehicles very quickly, and yeah. it's a technological boon, so they can actually start standing up against the uh, the invaders. Yeah. Well, that's what the artillery man says as well. It's like, oh, well, you know, we're going to be as rats now, but give us a few years. We'll reset up and we're going to, you know, we're going to kick these guys asses. There's definitely that uh, that kind of human pushing back against it kind of like technological progress kind of optimism. I think there's a lot to be said about him not being just insane, right? The artillery man, one of the things that happens is 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 that we don't recognize him at first and he doesn't recognize our narrator at first when he comes out of that hole, right? He's been mm-hmm. he's been in that hole for 12 days or something 13 days something like that and he's been starved. He also he doesn't know he thinks he's gone deaf. He thinks he's gone blind, but especially deaf. Um and then he comes out and he sees sees the devastation and then he comes across this guy with a sword and says this my, this is my area all this area down to the river or whatever this is all mine and then they recognize each other and then they go through the sequence where the narrator thinks that this guy is actually hot shit he says he says you know if it's a, it's kind of a class story right this guy's below my class he's an artilleryman he's not an officer Right. Yeah. And yet he survived and he's fit for this new environment. And the dreams he describes of surviving uh, and and it's like an alternate ending that, you know, could set up a, a sequel 10,000 years down the road or 100 yeah. years. Down there's the some road. great there's some great illustrations, actually, of the artillery. I can't remember where they, they weren't in the collection that you sent me, but the artillery man's, you know, underground London world and what it would look like. And you're like, oh, right. This is real utopian stuff. He mm-hmm. talks yes. a really good future. He talks a really good game. But, yeah, once he sees the uh, once he actually sees the reality of this guy's capability, you're like, oh. what's the line that was in the album as well? I, I suddenly re- recognize the gulf between reality in his dreams or something like that right and yeah. and he figures that out when he's doing the digging and then uh, yeah. you know it's in the wrong spot um yeah. but he also says um the the guy likes to go on walks and take breaks right and play mm. cards and <laughs> it's uh, it's almost like a well it's it's him too the artillery man is him too because the imagination the artillery man has about how they're going to break into the museum and get all the right books and that's your job your job is to pick the right books and you're going to help me run this new underground society and we're going to take over a a fighting suit and won't it be a surprise to them when we sneak out and get one and uh i'm not going to be herded into the camps the concentration camps that right it's a huge alternate vision that never comes true because of the way it ends but it it is something that he's comes back to again and again right with with the time machine that's the same vision and luke we did a book with yuliana um what's the one set a thousand years in the uh, 100 years in the future 200 years in the future yeah um, i can't remember the name of it now um but it's it, it's and a lot of a lot to do with sound as well was it the sweet the sleeper awakes that was yes, it wasn't well, it because uh, it, yes wakes up in the future awakes, that's right and and the vision is that basically they're living in a utopia of a kind and also a dystopia, but one where everything's become 
in the city, right? There is no, there's nothing that isn't underground, in inside domes or inside skyscrapers that are connected to each other. And it's 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 striking that these images of the future come from a, a madman in a sense. Um, this uh, him being able to both empathize and appreciate the uh, working classes and also sort of disdain them is striking. It's, it's almost like we're seeing into psychology. I'm I not, think the, I'm not uh, sure I think the idea he that, would see it, but okay. I, I no, I, I just think it's 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 so interesting that he is not a um, he's not a one note character in the same same way that the curate is, right? Mm. I just saying that the idea of like when calamity strikes, there's going to be this refuge and people are living underground comes up time and time again in science fiction in, you know, summer invades and there's all that kind of stuff. And then someone will be like, oh, where are you from? And they're like, come with me, follow me. And you, go, you have that little journey down through a thing, turn left, down right under this log, come out. And there's like a whole there's a, I mean, going back to the Ewoks, you know, sort of like, oh, there's a whole a whole society here which is living like hidden. And that's where redemption is going to come from or that's where and that happens time and time again in science fiction uh, maybe ewoks aren't the best example but you know in all these different alien invasions like the 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 main characters survive on their own wits and until a certain point and then they'll be brought into a circle of resistance underground and i really like that idea but also i really like in this where he's kind of like hg wells or the main author is kind of going yeah that's all good and well but that's not really realistic what really happens is everyone gets wiped out and London is empty and it's the biggest exodus of humankind, you know, of, of all time. That's, that's the reality of it. You know, there isn't any underground fighting really. I mean, there was just no resistance at all. There's no that, underground reference. You know, yeah, I, yeah. I don't know. What to, oops, sorry, Paul, go ahead. No, go, go ahead. Just go ahead. Sir. No, I, I was just going to say there, I don't know a heck of a lot about HG Wells, but I've read uh, a little bit on him and, um, he seemed to have, you know, uh, had a lot of women and things. Oh yeah, is this and that's correct? mentioned. Okay. That's mentioned so there, too. Yeah, so so the artilleryman starts to talk, and I just want to read this quick paragraph because I think that this is H.G. Wells. Yes, it is. Says, uh, <laughs> they used to skedaddle off to work. I've seen hundreds of them, bit of breakfast in hand, running wild and shining to catch their little season ticket train, for fear they'd get dismissed if they didn't. Working at businesses, they were afraid to take the trouble to understand. Skedaddling back for fear they wouldn't be in time for dinner. Keeping indoors after dinner for fear of the back streets. And sleeping with wives they married, not because they wanted them, but because they had a bit of money that would make for safety in their one little miserable skedaddle through the world. Lives insured and a bit invested for fear of accidents. And on Sundays, fear of the hereafter. <laughs> so that that's when he was starting, you know, thinking that the artilleryman is fantastic. But then when um, the artilleryman starts to talk about uh, exiling weaklings and things, mm. I think that yeah. that's when, when the main character started to say, uh, I'm not sure about this anymore. Yeah, and the eugenics. Uh, yeah, the yep. eugenics part and like concentration camps and like the fascistic, you know, pure race society or something like Oh right, that's that's kind of the the, the crossover between the survivalists, um, uh, you know, camp and this, you know, and the white survivalist 
crossover white supremacist maybe that's not exactly what i'm going for but you know it's that whole kind of thing that if you have a compound and it's all like that kind of stuff it's like oh we're going to survive after the apocalypse and stuff like that you you just kind of scratch the surface like oh and also white people only and you're like "Ah, right there it is there it is so he says he says we can't have any weak or silly life is real again and the useless and cumbersome and mischievous have to die they ought to die they ought to be willing to die it's a sort of disloyalty after all to live and taint the race and they can't be happy. Moreover, dying's none so dreadful. He also <laughs> says something about the women. Um, yeah, that was right, right before that. He said, um, let's see. Uh, they have to have the right kind see, of able-bodied, able-bodied, clean-minded women we want also. Mothers and teachers. No lackadaisical ladies. No blasted rolling eyes. There you go. Mm-hmm. No rolling yeah. eyes. Right? Yeah. This Don't is think for straight up. Yeah. There's no, you know subversion right mm-hmm. we're gonna live pure. yeah and, and at that point the main character is you know i felt at that point he was like uh who is this guy now i'm not yeah. positive anymore i was on his team a second ago but now i might not be yeah when, also, it was for, when it was for humanity i'm on the team when it's for you know white people of this class yeah maybe not wait, he doesn't say white people <laughs> i know fair. but that's the that's the overtones yeah. of it when he says right. weak people he's talking about you know people you know i no, i don't think he's talking about a, a about i don't think it's a racist thing i think i think it, it no, is but that's, eugenics that's the thing, way, absolutely yeah but that's the way that it is that i mean the way that we that character in the modern world wouldn't sure. be quite so eugenics or something it wouldn't be quite so class-based it sure. would be a race-based thing you know or something yes yeah, um, but, or something just, but i i think there i think he's look there there is a what it, what what the artillery man is saying there is is also what Wells is saying in a certain sense. So at this point, Wells, I, I, I have not read everything by him because he, he was the most prolific author of his era. Um, <laughs> and, you know, he's he wrote uh, a giant history of mankind that uh, I have not read. And he, he wrote a Just ton, read but, The Time Machine. The same things in The Time Machine. Just read that instead. I'm going, I'm, I will read that at some point. But I, I want to point out that he, that he was on his second wife by this point. Um, and he is a writer at this point. He's not, he's no longer a draper or draper's assistant or whatever it was. His life is now looking at things the way writers look at things, which is look at that guy going off to work. What a weirdo, right? How, how is it that people are so insecure? Another part of that speech, I think you left out, Scott, was when he said they're afraid to start their own businesses, right? They're so Mm -hmm. afraid of losing what they have. That they that they they will continue on in their mousy little way, right? And mm-hmm. his his vision is actually not completely insane. And it's not until I think he he starts realizing that some of these these um, provisions he's making are actually wrong. Like the tunnel's in the wrong spot, right? Yeah. They're they're digging and they're digging. And then he's enthusiastic about it. And then he's, wait a second, this is the wrong spot. And then says, we're going to take a break. Let's drink some champagne, right? It's, a, it's almost like there's something wrong with the leadership. And if you look at, there's another, there's a Jack London novel that does the exact same thing. It's it's basically, a, it doesn't seem obvious to us, but it, well, at least I don't think it, it's obvious to most people. It's very class oriented rather than... Um, anything else the 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 in the book called um the uh 
the I want to say the red one. That's not what it's called. The Scarlet Death, I think. Is that what it's called? Scarlet Plague. Mm. That's it. By Jack London. It's a novel in which everyone, almost everyone is killed by a disease. Um, those who survive uh, are to- uh, form tribes and the tribe that the narrator is in or becomes a part of is called the chauffeur tribe. And the reason is that was the guy's job. And notice that in this book, almost no people get names, right? It's the artillerymen. It's the, the uh, what's the cleric? The curate, right? The curate. And uh, Miss, Miss Elphinstone and Mrs. Elphinstone are actually their husband's name. And there's and the yeah. sisters' names, the the you know right. So there is whether he's putting it in there on purpose or not. It's uh kind of about class, and so when it's translated into the movie, uh the 2005 movie, Tim Robbins right is the uh, he's a combination of the curate and the artilleryman because he's digging, yeah. and he's singing, uh, and talking too loud, and then Tom Cruise has to go kill him. Um, or needs to, yeah, basically has to go kill him. Puts him out, yeah. It takes care of him, yeah. Yeah, there's a, it's surprising how much, um, because it's a, I think it must be a PG-13 movie, because every time they go for what would be a gory scene, they replace yeah, they it with explosions, it. right? Yeah. Um, and the, the, that people being vaporized is much cleaner than, I, I mean, the, maybe the most horrific scene in that movie is when he's at the window and he, there's a red spray coming on him, right? And we mm. see the roots growing. And if you look at some of the... I think it's actually in that album you mentioned, uh, Luke, um, it, which had a bunch of pictures in the center. Have you seen? Yeah, the illustrations, yeah. Right. There's a scene where you see... I don't think it's horsely common, but it's a, a street scene. Um, and there's a bird picking at what looks like bodies or corpses because it's just red. But it's actually not. It's the, it's the, the earth. Right, the covered it with a red plant. The visualization in the movie is, you know, you get all these red roots growing everywhere, but this fertilizer is human blood. Yeah. Right. And so when that yeah. uh, the, we get that little spray, and he, Tom Cruise hides his hand and wipes it off so his daughter doesn't see it. Um, that's the most horrific in terms of uh, blood that we get. The rest is like, you know, people being mean to each other or. Um, Tom Cruise closing the door and having his daughter sing a song and close her eyes while while it's happening. The the book is incredibly brutal about about everything, um, yeah, including hu- human beings and being sort of like these unworthy, uncharitable characters. But somehow we get to the end and the wife is there and he's okay and and yet. Uh, the final image of the the illustrations in the 19, 1897 version um, has the narrator looking exactly like H.G. Wells with a mustache sitting at a desk, <laughs> um, haunted by all the corpses and the the fighting machines in the background. Yeah. It's it's uh, just him being alone as a little tiny mouse, being fearful and on the run seeing all the things that he saw it's it, this is like it's a war book yeah the book is horrific in that way i mean like the the imagery is quite clear that like there's baskets of human bodies on the back of these war machines mm-hmm. oh is it the, no no it's not the war that's machines. in the movie the, that's in the movie 
Yeah, but I mean, I, it's in the book as well that yes. there's that there's that there's just they're just flinging, you know, picking up humans and just flinging them around and boiling them and burning them and things. And it's just like, yeah, this is our food now. This, this is what you are. Um, yeah. yeah, it is. It is horrific, and it would be so difficult to put that. Um, oh yeah, the, yeah, the movie has. That's what they go into the basket, don't they, at the end? Whereas yes. It, 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 I think in the book it's more clear that the people are dead by the time they drop into the basket. Uh, whereas in the movie, you can't like really. You, again, it would be a bit too horrific to show it. So they're like, "Oh, we're being captured." Yeah, and in the book, it's like, "Nope, no capture necessary. We'll just we just want your blood." There's um, there's a, a also a scene like uh, I guess Stephen King is uh, not Stephen King. Uh, Spielberg's very good at doing the, getting the PG thirteen rating. But there's a scene where we're on a hill and we look down and we see. Uh, not the fighting machines, but their the the lights on the ends of their you know tentacles. Yeah. And they're they're just moving up and down, and what's actually happening? You have to infer it because it's not really shown. Is those are human beings being picked up and thrown into yeah. the into the baskets, and it's not like two or three. It's like hundreds of these movements at a time. It's it is um, it is wholesale slaughter, in a way that is pretty hard to show on film without yeah. uh, freaking everybody out. Um, I don't yeah, imagine that's going to be it. in the BBC version. I think the BBC no. version might be a little bit more sanitized. But oh, again, I think was it 1953 version where there would be heat raid and there would just be the black outlines on the on the floor. Is that the is that the movie I'm thinking about there with the uh, yes the I black think that's right. black and outlines and that was and that directly referencing that. that that freaked me out when I was a kid watching that. I was obviously way too young to be watching that, but I, I had I had nightmares about being turned into black dust um, but, in that way. It's, but that well, that is um, uh, straight out of the period it's in, right? Which is Hiroshima. And yeah, 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 yeah. It's so that's what that's what I was mentioning before. Like you imagine the the weapons. Like now we go, oh yeah, heat rays, are lasers. But it was back then. It's like, oh no, heat rays, radiation. <laughs> yep. And before that, heat rays. Oh, fire, like flamethrower. Oh no, heat rays. Are, you know, whatever. You can you can say what it's like now. You, you can say what it is. You can, you can keep re up yeah, updating yeah. it for what yeah. the, what the current technology is. What one personal note I wanted to make about this about this book, Jesse. Mm-hmm. Um, so this this ties into the first book i ever did with you on snf audio which was actually about was it was which was about five years ago as the time of this recording do you remember it no remind me footfall ah yes oh, that yeah that was that was the that was the that was the first book i did with you guys on snf audio i believe scott was on that episode yeah as i well. was yeah yeah so, so, yeah, really? it'd be interesting so to look at that again in in light of this mm. yeah i think it's do a reread at some point mm-hmm. to see yeah uh, how do i feel somebody about it? Somebody was trying to get me to reread it or read it and review it for my podcast, but I've just not had that great experiences going back and reading Larry Niven, Jerry Pornell <laughs> books because they're just so racist and sexist. It's like so much. And I was like, oh, let Footfall be the one where I – being super sexist or racist i'm yeah, sure it was that's the thing i'm sure it yeah. was and every other of those books that i've gone back and read i'm like oh no this one's really sexist and racist as well and so <laughs> footfall is my book which i'm not going to go back and read. i'll just keep the like the naive memories of how much i enjoyed that book <laughs> in my head and i'm not gonna and that can be the book which i you know i i'll just i'll just hope that it isn't as racist and sexist as literally all the other ones of those books are that i've uh, that i've read uh, well, reread for now um, for the, the podcast. So, 
You guys wanna, go for it. I want to talk about how important sound is. I've mentioned it a couple a couple of times already. So the sound of not making noise so that the monster outside that's on sentinel duty doesn't hear you is important. And the fact that he goes, he thinks he goes deaf because he he's making so little sound and he he doesn't even you know when he talks. At one point uh, when he's in the house at the end, he says something like, "My uh, my." my thoughts had taken voice. Did I say that aloud, right? He didn't even know that it was his wife. He just heard mm. the words, right? So this idea of sound being important, I think is, it it, it really is. Um, and I want to read this because this is really striking in the book to me. Um, in South Kensington, the streets were clear of the of dead and the black powder. It was near South Kensington that I first heard the howling. I crept almost imperceptibly upon my it crept almost imperceptibly upon my senses it was a sobbing alternation of two notes oola 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 keeping on perpetually and then what happens is we go a paragraph and then we get oola 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 and then another paragraph and we get it again so he's telling the story and we keep seeing these words over and over again um and then I, I tried to formulate a plan of action. That perpetual sound of oola, oola, oola confused my mind. It's probably easy to skip this if you're reading it on the page. It's less easy when you're listening to the audiobook. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and, and the, I think it's the musical album. Right. Uh, 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 abruptly across the bridge, the sound of oola, like so it it becomes a mystery. What what is this thing, right? Um, and I don't think it's definitively stated in the book, but I think we all know what it is, right? It's like a distress beacon, like I've fallen and I can't get up. Yeah, it's a death cry. It's a oh, you know, you're setting off the setting off the yeah, like you say, an alarm in a way. So, uh, oh, so sorry about that. I had a brief loss of power and oh wow, yeah, mm-hmm. got disconnected. Yeah, so unfortunately, my backup recording is going to be for crap. Just yeah, and that. I apologize, guys, but I've got to run uh, again. I'm not able to text you for some reason. It just sits here saying sending. So okay, uh, but anyway, uh, in the I'm Skype off. chat, please don't stop. Yeah, in yeah. the Skype All chat, right. I type Thank and you. it just says sending. Thanks, Scott. Uh, See you later, Scott. Have a good best, everybody. Thank you, you for having me. <laughs> bye bye. On average, this podcast this podcast is going to have two and a half people on for on by, <laughs> on average. Pretty, <laughs> it's pretty crazy. Um, so I, I think that that, 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 that sound and the, it's, it's actually really interesting the way you, he's, he, basically he's a master craftsman. I, I love the way he writes. He writes kind of mean characters doing a lot of sort of questionable things, a lot, a lot of his stuff, but he's so good at crafting a story. It's amazing. I just think that just the, the the way he writes, like what you see, again, it just comes back to there's a reason why these have been so successful and so adapted so much is because like even you say just about the sound and then that sound cutting off and him being alone and, you know, all the silence and stuff is such a, like you say, it's such a huge part of the book that somebody could just use a sound and like retell the story with sound with, the, you know, the Jeff Wayne's War of the World, which, which is another thing that 
fucked me up as a kid because it was uh, uh, horrific. Um, the ending of that is really scary. And a big part of that is, like you say, the oola and then it cutting out to silence. Like being able to write that silence is a is a scary thing is, you know, it's very, very powerful. And he does that with, you know, like all of the different, like I say, those small details about like the color, the colors and the dust and the, you know, the weeds growing and taking over the crawling, creeping nature of it all. Um, so evocative, like I say, it's, it's so it's such a mind for people to get different things out of the book if they want to. But as you read it, like I've read this book like 12 times or something um, for a, my own adaptation that I was writing, um, which I never, com- never completed a, a public version of. But uh, it was, uh, yeah, there's just so much in there. And I was like, oh, that means this and then go off in a different direction. Um, just like every other person who's done an adaptation, there's just so much in there that you can just take it in different directions. I I, I think you know, like if if you you're right, you're right. One of the things that comes up uh, if you if you're I'm not sure if he why he's doing it, but it's something. There's something going on with the dog. So there's a there's a bar called the or what do they call a pub called the Spotted Dog. Mm-hmm. He, he rents a dog cart, which is a kind of cart. It's not. It's just a two-wheeled cart, right, with a horse, right? Um, but lost. Uh, there's a, a yelping dog, a lost retriever dog, um, a howling dog, a good dog. When he says, <laughs> uh, and it, it runs off carrying some food, uh, Martian meat, right? Um, it's it's like man's best friend is is kind of like an avatar for how we are uh and, and when we go to war man's best friend doesn't know what the hell's going on right mm. <laughs> it's like uh, there's shells here there's shells there that what's going like um and unlike the 1953 version where you've sort of got this ensemble cast of a small town of california where they all sort of get together and hoe down and square dance, and then the sheriff comes and he starts playing with the like a very very American sort of community uh, almost what's that that apple pie kind of eating yeah well who who oh no I was just saying that they're eating apple pie you know it's yeah exactly and you know when 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 it comes to the you know when the military comes in the the leading lady who's a big fan of the scientist right she puts on a nurse's uniform and starts handing out coffee right it's very very 1950s um sort of weird reality and they even have a a mexican character in there wow amazing right what's what's going on in this book is it's more like disconnection right he's disconnected from his wife he's disconnected from his his circle of friends he's disconnected from uh all the people he meets and he's even disconnected from uh, man's best friend and the animals there aren't that many there's a horse there's the birds right um, crows yeah yeah there, there's not that many but the 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 sense of disconnection I think is really important because it it's uh, I think what he's pointing to is there's some sort of veneer over our reality which is you know everyday normal stuff not during war and then you take yeah. off that veneer and you see how things really are. 
Yeah. Well, that's what he says at the beginning. It's sort of like they invaded, but like life continued on for normal for a few days while they were still building there. Right, that's, right. Yeah, that's that's so crazy. Like, no, 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 no. Everything's changed now. And he's like, how, how, you know, looking back, how could I believe that I just, you know, I just went to bed and got up the next morning and then went out and got the newspaper to see what the latest news was. And I was like right there. But yeah, it's a crazy, crazy setup. That I, I just... I... It's like that he peppers the whole book through with with dogs. So we go right back to the spotted dog at the beginning, um, with people being bitten by dog. Like there's just so that just one tiny little plot thread going all the way through is something that if someone I don't know if you're if you're doing some sort of paint by numbers writing, uh, people don't always forget that there's there's these un explained things i don't know when you're reading like a a novel by somebody who's i don't know copying another novel and yeah this is this is this is something that, that never gets copied right because it's it doesn't mean a thing it's just there for uh some unconscious purpose and i don't yeah. know if he puts it there's, in there th consciously or not I don't know. There's this moment where he says, "Oh, somebody was looting and like stealing from a." Am I remembering right? Someone stealing from a jewelry shop or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I was always just like, Did, "Is he saying that the is he saying that the artillery man was the one who had stolen that stuff?" Because like, no, there was nobody else around. You know, like, mm -hmm. why would anyone mm -hmm. steal that? But is the artillery man? You know, is he stealing jewels? I don't know. But yeah, there's so many of those little details which aren't explained. It's just like, yeah, this is this is happening and that's happening. That's happening. It it does give give a richness to the deserted London. Um, and the places that he goes, and and his brother goes, of course. But that's like the same character. Uh, it's it's so, yeah. very interesting. Yeah, it's almost like he's got he's got his wife, and he's got his his uh, his other wife, and his yeah. his potential other wife, because there's all these women that are run, and, and his cousin as well. Don't forget his cousin. Yeah, um, yeah his cousin's a woman. Too. Um, mm. And uh, in some of the stories, um, <laughs> Wells has characters who live with their cousins who are female and. You get get the get the sense that yeah that's not too taboo, right? Because yeah, you know, improving their species, <laughs> enhancing the <laughs> really is this where we're going now? <laughs> well, that, I'm not I'm not the guy I'm not the guy who wrote. You didn't it, write yeah. it. You didn't write it. Yeah. No, but I am seeing what he's laying yeah, down. It's, it's a, surprising. There's, a, there's that there's that weird thing with Heinlein as well, where like all yeah. of the all of the women characters are called Virginia or Virginia or something like after his wife, but and some all of them redheads. Are, and they're all redheads, and so, but some of them are love interests, and then some of them are sisters, and then some of them are the ones you're like, oh, this is too yeah. creepy. Like if all the love interests were called Virginia or something, you're like, like, okay, that's good. But like, but not also the sisters and the cousins and the daughters and the mothers and stuff. It's like, ah, it's, it's a bit weird now. Um, I don't know. And maybe uh, that's just me. I I want to touch back on why uh, this book is so good again, just by point two. Your podcast, pointing, let's do it. <laughs> by pointing to um, how it is actually, it is visually basically designed to create the whole disaster movie industry, right? It is astonishing how good it is at sort of showing this whole genre that's basically been inspired by it, right? We've yeah. got 
it is the ur text for that like it you really keep, is. you always go back and you're like well well obviously this happens in war of the world so we don't need to explain it now like aliens arriving on earth like you don't even need to explain it now you just say alien invasion you're like yeah of course and it always goes and the same with the time machine once he explained that like you can travel through time and because you're moving so quickly sideways you don't interact with anything just because you're like you're moving so fast that people can't see you and you just go through and you're like so that's it moving through time and everyone's like all oh, right that's how time is you don't need to explain it mm-hmm. it just becomes the basis for other explorations and other stories set in with the same idea um but yeah i mean maybe there was ones beforehand alien invasion and time machines but it's it's like i say it's the one it's the foundational one because it's so good um, i'm gonna read a um root. a paragraph from uh chapter two what is that called it's the taproot that everything yeah. else afterwards references back to, or like you assume, oh, yeah. you know, it's just like that. So go uh, forward. I want to, uh, this is another thing that comes up that is, uh, I think it ties into, uh, again, if you look at Doctor Who, it's it's the Time Machine plus uh, this book and a bunch of other books too by uh, <laughs> Wells and other things. But um, the one I was watching last night, uh, or the night before was um, Planet of Evil, which is a combination of Forbidden Planet and Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde, right? With antimatter. <laughs> you're, and, uh, you're, you're in a Doctor Who kick because the I last am. time we talked, we were talking about Genesis of the Daleks. Exactly. I'm going. Well, I'm going through the Tom Baker seasons, I guess. Anyways, um, I want to read this because uh, it's really it's it's super cool. The Martians wore no clothing. Their conception of ornament and decorum were necessarily different from ours. And not only were they evidently much less sensible of changes to temperature than we are, but changes of pressure do not seem to have affected their health at all seriously. Uh, That is important because they basically are rocketed off their planet by bullet, uh, Mm. you know, by cannon and land as a bullet does into a target, right? Yet though they wore no clothing, it was in the other artificial additions of their bodily resources that their great superiority over man lay. And this is actually true of humans as well right we men with our bicycles road skates our lilienthal soaring machines our guns and sticks and this is before airplanes right but not Mm. before flying machines just before airplanes our guns and sticks and so forth are just the beginning of the evolution that their great uh that the martians had worked out they have become practically mere brains wearing different bodies according to their needs just as men wear suits of clothes and take a bicycle in a hurry or an umbrella in the wet. And of their appliances, perhaps nothing is more wonderful to a man than the curious fact that what is the dominant feature of almost all human devices in mechanism is absent, the wheel, right? Mm. So they, their whole system is set up without the wheel, and so is ours in a certain sense, right? What we've done is we've actually made the world conform to the wheel rather than the other way around. Yeah. Um, And that's really obvious once you try and, like, take a wheel to a place where the road road hasn't been placed because wheels don't work. Yeah, that quote is like, if an alien arrives in suburbia, would he say, is this designed for humans or is this designed for cars? You're like, well, this place is obviously designed for cars and humans are secondary. Whereas other cities, you're like, is this for humans or cars? You're like, oh, well, this is all traffic jams here and stuff and there's big buildings. So, yeah, this is for the humans. So it's a tricky one. Yeah. So the 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 idea that they're just putting on suits 
right? But mm. but they are suits. That's it, right? Is everything a suit for them? And and I love how Wells not only just says you know it's it's a it's a hat, but it's an umbrella is part of your yeah. and so when the fighting machines and this is not shown in the movies, right? Um, when the fighting machines are doing the fighting, they're actually holding the equipment, right? They've got a little camera box, and then there's a reflecting dish, right? Yeah. So it's not like it's a, a part of the machine. The machine is a suit of clothing that the guy's wearing, and then he has a bunch of stuff that he can carry around with him, I, I don't know, on a belt or something. I guess that's not really explicitly said. That it's a toolkit, so it's not like there's missiles built into his arm, like a, I don't know, a transformer or whatever, right? He pulls out a piece of equipment and uses it with it, or it uses it with its tentacles in the way that yeah, we yeah. pull out a piece of equipment and use ours. But this, this is what we humans do as well. Like if you get into a car and you drive a car and you almost clip something with a car and you're reacting to it, you're not reacting like, oh, uh, the edge of the car is coming close here. So let me get my arm and pull down on the steering wheel here and put my foot on this pedal here to make me bring across here. So like, you don't, you just go, oh, I almost hit something. So I swerved. Like the language mm-hmm, is actually mm-hmm. what the alien's doing there. That's what we do when we get into cars. Like we no longer think about what our hands and our arms and our bodies are doing or where we're looking and stuff. All we do is like we become one with the car. And that's why it's so difficult to be a passenger because you're not one with the yes. car and you're just going along for a ride. And uh, it's it's very well, you know, it's shown it's shown very much with HG Wells, but he's kind of like describing what it is like to ride a bike. Like you don't think of the or bike. Fly well, actually, a plane. You know, well, it, well, actually, with a, with a bike, you still, because you're using your body weight to do all of that. But in a car, it's not about body weight. It's not about body strength. It's, not, it's all mean, about it's, brain, I mean, yeah. It's all about brain. And your arms and legs and, and even your head and what you do just becomes an extension of the car in a way. Like you're just a – your brain is just the direction unit for the car. And actually, how many – like if you use your arms to steer or if you use your feet to steer or like how it's doing or what's going on, isn't that important? It's like you're just – you are just this – this little cog in the well, not in the cog in the machine. You're, the You're ready little... to write the uh, article called uh, "The Philosophy of the uh, uh, Fast and the Furious." Right? It's yeah, it's, kind of yeah. Uh, you become it, the car. Yeah, they right. are their They're... personalities. That's why they each have their own car, and the cars exactly survive right. from movie to movie. As as long as the humans are surviving, they all come back in the same car. You're like, how is that car still going from the first movie or the third movie? <laughs> and it, it, I, it, I've only seen the trailers and stuff. I don't actually watch I those agree. movies, but it is interesting to always see them turning up in the same vehicles again and again. And uh, I don't know if you guys had this problem with the uh, Pacific Rim movie, but I did too. Uh, I did. I did too. I'm agreeing with myself. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, one of the things I, I never understood why they did it. I, I, I don't think it works. Is that each machine needs two people to operate, and they yeah. have to coordinate like in a dance move or something. The whole yeah. point of having a giant fighting suit is that it's kind of like the power fantasy of being hyper competent, right? These yeah. tiny little squidgly aliens that can't even hold themselves up on the heavy earth are incredibly powerful in the same way that the Daleks, right, are mm. these just squidgly little buckets of brain um, that have these incredibly dangerous, uh, you know, suction cups and laser laser beams that destroy everything, exterminate. They're, they're, they're the world's greatest threat, right? The universe's greatest threat because of their equipment, because of their suit. 
Mm. Um, and so in in having the giant monster battles, which I'm all in favor of, in, in yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they I don't know what they're thinking because the whole ha- having to do it in coordination doesn't make any Jesse. sense. Well, they, they, it's they, to they make the movie better. It's just to make it a bit though, of It conflict. doesn't, though. It undercuts it. it no, because well, they have to They have to be a team. And it's like, we've got to come together. If it's just one guy putting on a suit, it is just power fantasy. But they have to get together and solve problems and to work out who's going to be the part, who's going to partner with who and stuff. It, it, it just provides that tension and drama of, you know, have to work as a team. It's not just people by themselves, you know. That's, that's although, what exactly what I was going to say, Luke. Yeah. 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 I think by the end of it, he can drive it by himself, and it's sort of like, eh. is that the is that the movie where they can suddenly just go, oh, at the end, oh, it turns out he can do it by himself, but maybe I'm thinking of a different, a yeah. Different movie, well, they, uh, different but they also say, but that's the other thing, is right, is they say it's all about you know being in mental sync, but actually it's all dance yeah. moves, right? Yeah, <laughs> which, which has nothing. <laughs> but that's what dancing is. That's what dancing is. You should you should learn to juggle with someone and throw clubs at them and then come back again. You you understand okay, how other people how other people can be an extension of you and you that's become an right. extension that's of the other person. It's uh, via physics and gravity in between. Oh, I just wanted to mention as well. You said about the the wheels. That mm-hmm. uh, my theory of why there's no wheels on Mars and they you know that's not part of it um, is because of the red weed because it grows so quickly and is so different to manage and if it got into an axle it would break it and things so i think um all of the all of the things um on mars all of the animals on mars have long legs to step over the weed and to step on the weed and to go through the weeds and like it's all difficult like you you wouldn't invent like if you if you had to walk through forests and thickets and like in the amazon jungle i mean there's it's not like the first ever kind of technology of of moving things around in the amazon forest will be wheels no of course it's boats because that's you know it's all it's all there, but it's in it's in all of South America. Like the Aztecs, no, not the Aztecs, the Incas or something. They weren't using wheels. They had their llamas and put everything on the backs of llamas because the, it's too steep. There's too it's many mountains. It's not that they didn't invent like it. It's not that they couldn't no, it's understand wasn't it. Useful. It's that it just yes. wasn't useful. Yeah, we literally so transformed think, the world to make the wheel a, a viable technology, and it is incredibly yeah. viable as long as you've got like uh, think yeah, of the places in the world yeah. where it's naturally good. There's one, and it's called the salt flats, right? That's it. Yeah. That's the only yeah. place in so, the world where it's actually useful. <laughs> but yeah, it just nature. doesn't evolve. It doesn't evolve. No, isn't it the in the isn't it the uh, his dark materials ones where there's some there's some animals that I mentioned. I can't remember because I've not actually read the books, but I heard someone talking about it once. And there's they have to hold things, and there's these lava flows that they roll along or something like that. I can't. I haven't read the books. So I, I don't once know exactly. invented an alien for some reason. I probably at school. I was bored stiff at school, so I invented an alien bird. That used a propeller instead yeah. of a, um, and I did all the like how it would have like one long leg and one short leg, um, and basically <laughs> the, the I had the propeller be like the um, it was a, a sort of the uh, I don't know the the core of a, a fruit tree yeah. that it, it was in. So the birds they land in the tree and and they they grab these things, eat the fruit, and then they use the propeller to spin yeah. instead of flapping the wings. Um, and the wings are just gliders or something like that. And, and the, the ultimate point of all of this was nothing other than like just thinking through all the necessary requirements it would have to have. But ultimately, I do not know which is more efficient for relatively low speeds, um, helicopter blades, or you know, uh, in this case, it was forward momentum. Uh, or yeah. just soaring with with movable wings because it seems to work fine for birds. I have a feeling that maybe it's not as efficient. 
maybe it's it's much it's a more different kind of engine though it's that's the thing like if we we humans with our machines rotational energy is like yeah but a bicycle you actually have massive massive friction awesomeness right that's why bicycles are so cool is that you put in a little energy instead of losing that energy with your stepping you gain it right yeah. so uh, it's yeah. transformed whereas with the air i think it's actually the opposite it's rather inefficient well, it's not, it's not just not efficient, it's pushing. just our power source, our power source, or a bird's power source is eating food and converting sugar and oxygen into power and stuff like that. Whereas all the planes, they, they take, you know, the compacted uh, energy of, you know, past generations of dinosaurs and burn it. And you just have like way more energy there. But if you wanted then to convert that energy down into flapping wings, then that wouldn't be, you know, you, yeah. where birds and, flying, and they want to spend... They want yeah. to spend as much time not flapping their wings as possible. So, uh, by the way, the, I had to make an, an ecology that would explain it as well, and it was basically yeah. it was a incredibly mountainous planet or something because yeah, yeah. Uh, otherwise, what, why wouldn't you have it, to take off from something high? Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> and also just like to because nothing evolved from an air creature, right? They all start as ground creatures. So right. they have to have legs to begin with, basically, or slugs, or you know, something, some sort of mm. ground-based system, and then they evolve into an air-based system. Or sea-based system. There's there's flying fish. As I, well, yeah, so. I guess that's true. You could have yeah. done it through the sea. I didn't think about that. And uh, it, propellers a lot more handy in the sea than in the and on the ground. So there you go. Saying. So you start. So you start yeah. off with the propeller that pushes you along like some core of a fruit or whatever it is. Mm. And then, yeah, and sometimes goes in the air and you're like, oh, this propeller also the works. Closest, the closest yeah. that's in nature is actually the squid, right? With the with their jet of air I to think, give them I think there's a bacteria water. that actually, there's a bacteria or something, what, sing, not single cell, whatever cell organism, which has a, uh, which has a propeller. It's a, it's yeah. a. But it has like a little cog kind of thing, propeller kind of thing. So uh, you're, you're, you're talking about the flagella on things like paramecium, yeah, or basically have little propeller things yeah. to, to yeah, move their propels. cilia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They mix the cilium and the flagella. It's, move. Yeah, it's yeah. not it's not uh, wheel based. With like, I had to come up yeah. with a way of greasing it. Yeah, lubrication. It was ridiculous, yeah. but um, all right. So I that's how science fiction. Yeah. Okay. So Jesse, here's if we're going to be wrapping up in a minute, here is my question to you. I've told you that this book and the time machine is amazing. I've I've been telling you this for getting on for ten years now. Wow. We've been we've been doing the pod. I did my S, uh, I did SFF no SFBRP. I've done that ten years, and it was about a year in. So maybe nine years. I've been talking to you now, Jesse, and saying that you should read the War of the Worlds, and been astounded that you haven't read it, and also the time machine. And it is good. It, it was it as good as you hoped it would be. Let me put it this uh, way. Yeah, it was. It was. It was. I would say exactly as good as I hoped it would be. So, so what, why didn't you read it before? Uh, be, you because it before? I had to do a podcast. Anything I read, I have to do a podcast on. And you wanted this, to, but you you put it off like you're like 300 episodes into your podcast now, aren't you? 500 many episodes, my friend. Is it? Uh, uh, yeah, you, guys, you guys, you guys do it or so. Um, yeah. Uh, well, look, and I I was tra- I was hoping to get Eric to come on because he did a big yeah. thing on this, and he um he has been unavailable basically since I started doing the other podcast with him. So um, I decided not to put it off. I think Scott wanted to do it, and yeah. Uh, 
Well, so now I want to read I let, it again. I let it flow. I've not read it for years. I've, I've not read it for about three years. But it's a book that I never actually did a podcast on because I was writing a no- my own novel based on it. You know, from the it was from one of the Martians' point of views, mm. and uh, there was there was a lot more speculation building on it. My own, you know, uh, head cannon theories and things. Um, head cannon. And uh, <laughs> what's that? Head cannon. What's that? Head cannon. <laughs> yeah, it's the cannon. That's it. It's what you do in your head to make something make sense later on. But in this I know, case, but I also like... think of Cybermen in their head cannons. Ah, okay. <laughs> uh, you're, you're on a. You're doing your Doctor Who thing. I've never. I've well, never that, seen I think. Cyber- I think that's probably what inspired it in part two. Is is, I think about how important. Like, why is Doctor Who so good? The original is because they're stealing from the best. Yeah. They're stealing from the best, right? It's ultimately at root. Science fiction is behind their premises. In the original yeah. show, right? We've got a time machine. We can go backward and forwards in time. We can go to visit aliens. We can go anywhere in the universe. And what do they choose to do with it? They don't choose to, you know, spend it all on minutiae on, uh, you know, trying to kill Hitler. In fact, I don't think that's ever been done. And if it has, it's probably been but aliens new invading ones. London. Signing happens off. all the time, right? They're always yeah. being invaded and. And it's all about, you know, the danger and and value of nuclear power, the danger and power of whatever kind of technology is underway. And it it's subversive, and it's it's intelligent, and it's stealing from the best because ultimately, <laughs> the Doctor is uh, the time traveler, right? That's his his. It, what happens? I haven't even read it, and I know it backward and forward, right? Um, yeah. Every episode, the Doctor's TARDIS gets taken away from him somehow, and he has to go looking for it, just like in the Time Machine, right? Yeah, and that's just the premise to get him into the world and engage with so, the reality. Yeah, so yeah, so it isn't just like say, okay, I'm out of here. And notice that there's never any sexual tension between the Doctor and any of the other characters because it's not about the it's, sexual tension; it's about the ideas. No, that's the excuse. I mean, they when they started Jesse, off, they didn't know he was an alien. You're, Jesse, you're very passionate about Doctor Who. I have seen literally one and a half episodes you, ever. <laughs> and, which, uh, which, which and Doctor Who did in, you see? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> You've been missing out, my friend. It's a children's show. I don't care about it. It's a silly kids show. Every time I've seen it, it looks, it looks pathetic. I'm sure people get into the story, into the characters, and all the problems over the science fiction stuff like that. It just looks so. Actually, I do remember. I saw the first ever when it was rebooted with Christopher Eccleston, and there was that first episode. I think it was Not called good. Rose. I yeah. saw that and was like, uh, I, I also saw half of an episode, but that also happened to be the first ever Peter Capaldi episode. And I was like, oh, okay, that was, uh, I see why people can uh, get that, um, get into that. But yeah, and and then bits and pieces of others, but it always looks silly. silly. There was one where there's some Victorian invasion, there was lizard people. I was just like, ah, it's so I mean, again, I'm sure it's great. Yeah, but stealing always, from Lovecraft there. Right. Yeah, but it always just for me, for me, just feels like oh, it's a kid. Show. It's like kids' science fiction for kids. And I do. I mean, it must be a kid show. But so many people it are into a kid it. Show. It, or it was so, a kid show. I don't yeah. think the new one is. I don't know what it is. But yeah, Paul, Paul, back me up here. Is Doctor uh, Who not the I, most brilliant science fiction show ever? It, it 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 is one of my favorites. I was about to say, Luke, you we can't be friends anymore if you hate Doctor Who. But I'm only kidding. I, no, no. Again, I'm not even saying I hate it. It's just when I've seen it, it always just feels a bit like, uh, you know. 
Yeah, I'll, I'll come on. The first Doctor, we've gone way off War of the Worlds, but the first Doctor Who episode I saw, I was like, I was like ten at the time, was Pyramids of Mars. So he had alien robot mummies, Egyptian deities, and Mars, and a time travel. It's like, of course I was hooked. He had all my, yeah, of course, all my because it's for right children. There. That's what I'm saying. It's for children. When I was a kid, I was saw one or two uh, Doctor Who's. There was this one where they but, were killing people in not, a circus, and I was like, oh, okay, that's fine. But it's not just for children. I mean, yes, yes, it's at base a children's show. At least the old one is, but. Yes. There's stuff there for adults as well. I mean, like like last week I'm we were sure talking there about is. Gen- sure Genesis there is. of the Daleks, and there's there's real important questions there about morality. Is it right to change history? To and like would it be right to kill a child that you know is going to grow up to be a tyrant? Well, I'm, I'm sorry just, that just this. Setting, I'm sorry that this setting. is a. Uh, I'm sorry that this is a controversial opinion. Me thinking that it's a, it's a kids' TV show. No, it is and, a kids' uh, TV show. But that yeah, yeah. I mean. That doesn't mean it's it's not like a kids' TV show like uh, Teletubbies. It's a kids' Wait, TV it, show about know, science fiction. Is this still the podcast? This- <laughs> yeah, it's the end. Okay. We're still on the podcast. We're still, the, we're still live. Okay, email, uh, email uh, t- talk to, complain to Jesse on Twitter about this, not me. I don't mean to insult. It's, it wasn't meant to be an insult. I'm just saying that I've never seen Well, I've you're just seen- ignorant. I, I'm saying, yeah, yeah. I, I'm saying, saying okay. you know... You, I knew that War of the Worlds was going to be a good book. I had a very strong feeling. Yeah. Um, but That's my, what I want to get back to. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm yeah. Just, you, know, you know the Time Machine is probably a better book than War of the Worlds. You do know that, don't you? I, I, don't, th- I don't think so based don't on my, my, um, my understanding of all the adaptations I've read. But you won't However, know until you read it. So why right. don't you read you're it, right. Jesse? I will just read it. I will read it. Schedule, Jesse. Might even be, might even be <laughs> this year. We'll see. Yeah, let's put it on the schedule for later. This I, year. I need to find an audiobook first. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm, sure I'm, sure we, sure. I'm sure we could do that. We could have Luke on, and then we can have this. We can revisit the War yeah. of the Worlds versus. And you, know, uh, and you know what? It's okay for me because I I can read the same book again and review it again on my podcast. I don't mind doubling up episodes. It's not exclusive. I can I can review a book every year for the rest of the podcast if I wanted to. The same book every episode. If I wanted to, again, since, since I started the SFP, I've read some books two, three, four times. And I mean, I don't think I've ever bothered reviewing it a fourth time, but there's a few books that I've reviewed twice. Like I've read it and then Juliana's joined me and she's read a book and we've reviewed it again. Like lots of times. I'm not, I'm not against rereading. I mean, I, I think that it's done too much by uh, most people who read, but I'm saying that it's... Yeah, not repodcasting. Repodcasting. I think you get it one and done and... And you live with the but consequences. We just did it. We just did another episode about altered carbon, and I I reviewed the book ages ago, and then I did the SF audio. But we actually recorded the new podcast before the SF audio yes, SFF audio it. podcast came out, and uh, yeah, it was good. I mean, I wouldn't maybe when I reread that book in the future, I'll go back to it and find more stuff about the book which uh, I've got to talk about. Although altered carbon, I think two. three podcasts in, I think I've got all that I need to say about <laughs> yep. it. Out of that. Yep. It's done. But uh, Annihilation, we just did We just did the book versus movie of Annihilation, and there's loads more stuff about that book that I could talk about. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. I saw somebody this morning tweeting about some... Uh, Trump guy who got canned, and they set up a GoFundMe for him. Which uh, one? I don't know. He's like probably today, huh? Oh, you talk about the CEO or 
whatever of uh, Exxon Mobil. Yes, yeah, Tillerson or McCabe. I, I think, think it was McCabe. Or, or, I think it was McCabe. Or, 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 oh, probably yeah, or, the FBI guy. Okay, or, but or, or is it, or or is it the personal handler that got walked out by the uh, <laughs> Secret Service? I mean, my God, this is this is yeah. I but mean, the important this, part, Paul, the important part about this, I think it was McCabe. Okay, because I don't follow it that closely. But the important part was they set up a go some. Um, uh, Silicon Valley person set up a GoFundMe for uh, McCabe because he was losing his pension, apparently, they said. Yeah, that's McCabe then. Okay. Yeah. Um, but turns out he's probably not losing his pension. And, get this, get this, he, he's worth $11 million. They're <laughs> <laughs> setting up a GoFundMe for his pension. So, wow. now, how does that strike you? That strikes me as um, either people like who are so rich that they think that the that eleven million dollars isn't enough to live on for a few years, or it's or, like just a, a a little political trick. Because who who would who would fund that unless they're trying to make a political statement? Nobody. Right. So I didn't I didn't realize either, it was worth that much, but I thought that. Trump having him fired just before his pension would have kicked in. No, even if he's worth the million dollars or not, is a dick move. It's like I'm, 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 I'm going to be, a, I'm going to be <clears> a dick person. It's a kind of goes with a terrible. Twenty, yeah, it was like twenty six hours or something before. Yeah, that's like retirement. That's, that that's that's Trump being vindictive and evil. And even if McCabe was worth a hundred million dollars, still, come on. <clears throat> Yeah, because you know, <laughs> the FBI is kind of important in our society. Yeah, yeah. well, yeah, what's it you know? say to every other agent in the FBI? Right, right, exactly. They're not, they're not good guys, guys. I know, but, 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 I mean, I mean, as an organization, the FBI does evil, but I'm. Um, <laughs> the, 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 well, well, individual SS members, they're good well, guys. Well, 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 the, I'm I'm sure there are there there are hardworking people within the FBI as well as people who abuse the FBI to do bad things to Dr. King and many other people. Oh. And I'm talking about the people who actually do actually bust their butts and actually give a damn. Not 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 yeah. the not the not the people who are on power trips and use the FBI as a as a method to of, of forming political of of enforcing political will. Well, I'm not sure what this has to do with the War of the Worlds. We're supposed to be talking. It doesn't. About the War of the it actually <laughs> does. The War of the it Worlds. does actually. All right, let's get started and find out. Okay, here we go. You right. Ready? Remember how this works? I remember how this works. Here we go. <laughs> 